Good evening and welcome to Theology on Tap. Uh, my name is Mike. I'm a priest at the Episcopal Church of the Holy Communion up in University City, uh, just sort of the other side of Del Mar over there. Uh, we are delighted to have you here. If this is your first time at Theology on Tap, special welcome. Uh, we get together here at uh, Trestles the first Wednesday usually of every month. We're going to skip July because the first Wednesday is the 4th of July and we think people might have other things to do. Uh, but unless something like that's going on, we're here. And we try to make space for folks to have conversations around questions around faith and politics and science and life. Uh, and so it's really great to have new folks with us uh, at any time. Uh, we're a collection of uh, a number of us are Episcopalians at various churches like Holy Communion and Trinity right here in the Central West End and the Cathedral downtown. Uh, but anybody's welcome and everybody's a full participant. We're really excited tonight, uh, one of our own members from Holy Communion, who is often a participant at Theology on Tap, agreed to be the speaker. Uh, Dr. Rebecca Messbarger is on the faculty at Washington University. Uh, she supposedly teaches Italian, and I hear her Italian classes are really good. But she's one of those professors that has sort of noodled her way into all sorts of wonderful things, uh, and has teaches in the intersections of uh, science and renaissance and popes and Italian and that's a lot to teach in the midst of uh, but Rebecca and I've had some really wonderful conversations I get really nervous anytime I touch on anything about renaissance theology because uh, Rebecca is an expert in it but some of her research has touched in some really interesting ways on these intersections of faith and science and so I thought it would be really fun to have Rebecca come and talk about history and talk about the way it touches important questions today. So if you will help me welcome Rebecca Messbarger. Thank you so much. And uh, it, yeah, it's, it's great to be um, on this side of the beer barrel um, <laughs> instead of over there. And, um, Thank you for coming out. I do have to, I mean, I hope when you saw from the gallows to the dissection table, I don't need to do too many trigger warnings that there might be a little bore in my conversation. I hope there was enough warning. But just so you know, I'm going to be talking about gallows and human dissection. So you might want to eat your rare burger quickly. Um, so I thought I would begin by asking the question, uh, that some of my students ask me, what is to be gained by the study of history? And um, I think it's maybe a good idea to quote from a, a famous St. Louisan, T.S. Eliot, who said, the historical sense involves the perception not only of the pastness of the past, but also of the present, of its presence presence of the past. And I think this is something that we are grappling with. Um, and so anyway, hopefully some of the things that I'm going to talk about today um, will provide some insight about the presence, even though we're going all the way back to the 1700s. So what I want to do is, be, is begin by taking you to Bologna. Bologna, Italy. Has anyone been to Bologna, Italy? Field trip. Yeah. Uh, um, Warren accompanied me and my students. Warren, wave your hand. Warren is a dean, and Warren's son Christian um, to Bologna. So uh, you know, uh, don't look too bored. 
because some of this will be familiar to you. Anyway, we're going to the city of Bologna, which was, you know, a, a city just, now if you take a train, it's 35 minutes north of Florence, in the little north central of Italy. And uh, Bologna is important. It has two nicknames, both of which are very important. Um, and sort of funny, the first nickname that may be familiar to some of you, especially if you like Mario Batali, is La Grassa, the fat lady. And that is because Bologna is a center of Italian cuisine. It's where stuffed pasta originated. Um, the bastardization of fried ravioli, I'm sure they'd be appalled. But, um, so, uh, sausage and stuffed pasta. Its other moniker or nickname is La Dotta the learned, and that is because it is the center of the oldest university in Europe. And it was a very prestigious center for medicine. Um, but I am taking you to the Enlightenment age, 1710, and Bologna has now declined. It has sub suffered a hundred year long decline. And we could probably mark it from the year 1633. 1633 is when a guy Galileo Galilei was condemned for his heliocentric uh, cosmic notion, right? He displaced the center, for the, the earth from the center of the cosmos, and he put the sun there, and he was condemned for heresy. The reason Bologna suffers after that is because it's the second city of the Holy See, meaning it's the second city of importance after Rome itself. After Galileo's condemnation, the experimental science, the scientific revolution that's going on all over Europe kind of stops in Bologna. Only authorized texts, authorized by the church, are allowed. No experimental science. Um, so we're in this moment of cultural decline in 1710. But I'm going to talk about something much more personal. It is a frigid early morning, January 22nd. We are in the main Piazza Bologna, Piazza Maggiore. This is the center of civic life, of religious life, and of academic life. Over here, we have the Grand Public Palace, the center of government. In front of me is the Church of San Petronio, the grand church. And to the left of me is the Archigenasio, the seat of the university. But in the middle of the piazza today is a scaffold that has been erected the night before for today's capital execution. The criminal is named Lucia Cremonini. She is a 23-year-old maid to a noble palace. Her crime is infanticide. So one month prior, just about, on December 5th, 1722, Lucia Cremonini gave birth all alone in the fifth floor garret apartment where she lived with her mother to an infant male. Her mother was in the countryside at the time. She was found by women in the building and a workman. She was in her bed, covered in blood, and when they came in to inquire what had happened, they found in a box underneath the bed a dead infant. The police were called, as were the civic surgeons. They arrived on the scene and they interrogated her while she was in her bed. 
And she said that during the throes of delivery, she fell from the bed, the infant hit its head and died. But when the surgeons examined the body, they saw a gash from the, the mouth to the collarbone. So she was arrested and she was taken to uh, the hospital, <laughs> a great name for a hospital, Hospital of St. Mary of Death. The hospital <laughs> You did not want to wind up at Hospital of St. Mary of Death. And this is where the indigent went. She was taken there because she just had a baby, and they decided she was too weak to go to prison, so they were going to keep her there for three weeks. And then she was transferred to the prison. Um, we know a little bit about what happened uh, during this period of a month before her execution. Um, her mother testified against her. She didn't want, did not want to be incriminated in the infanticide. Um, midwives were called in to testify that the baby had gone to term, and so she had given birth to a live, healthy infant. The police found the murder weapon in the apartment. It was a bread knife. They brought it to the prison, forced Lucia to hold it, and she confessed to the crime. She, they asked her how in the world you, an unwife mother, how did you get pregnant? And I thought it would be interesting to read from her own words. She said, being a virtuous maid and the good daughter of Catherine, my mother, a widow, during the past carnival season, carnival, do we all know what carnival is? This, you know, where we wear masks, it's sort of this upside down moment in the liturgical calendar. She said, during the past carnival, I went to the piazza one day for what I can't recall. And while I was under the portico where they sell lemons, a young priest I did not know took me inside a dark and narrow gangway between a goldsmith's shop and a general store. And there, trapped in the small dark stairwell, robbed me of my honor and my virginity. I had never before had carnal relations with another man, nor had any man ever touched me. So, now we are in Piazza Maggiore, January 22nd, 1710. Lucia is brought out of the municipal prison. She is taken through the portico of death that leads into Piazza Maggiore. And brother consolers, this is a confraternity that would pray with condemned criminals until their execution. And she is led by brother consolers. One is holding an image of the crucified Christ in front of her face. They walk her to the gallows. They walk her up the stairs. They stand with her while the noose is put around her neck. And she is said to have had a good death, fece buona morte, because she cried out her contrition when the, when the floor dropped. Okay, so all of this story is told by a colleague of mine, uh, Adriano Prosperi, in a beautiful book um, on this story, but he leaves out the final chapter. In the documents, we know that that same night, as a post-mortem punishment of Lucia and humiliation of her criminal body, her cadaver, her corpse is dissected in the public theater off that same piazza Maggiore. So, the dissection of a criminal, of a, of a condemned criminal, was standard procedure. It was a violation of the body, 
of a criminal who had violated the body politic. And some historians have seen it in terms of a three-part morality play. The execution of the criminal, the dissection of their corpse, the Christian burial of that criminal, and a banquet to show that order, the civic order and the moral order is reestablished. And that is exactly what happened to Lucia. The uh, anatomical theater, which you can visit today, I have an image of it that I'll pass around, um, on the night of her dissection was hung with silk um, drapes. Music played. You paid for a ticket to get in. Two torches at the head and feet cast her corpse in a kind of eerie glow. That's the story of Lucia Cremonini, as far as we know. I am now going to push us forward just 27 years. In the same city of Bologna, we now have an archbishop whose name is Prospero Lambertini. He's a nobleman, a native son. He has come back to his town after a long period in Rome. And he sends out a notification in 1737 to all the parish priests of Bologna, and he compels them, he, he orders them to compel their parishioners to give up their dead kin for the public good, the bene publico of human dissection. So in this brief amount of time, we have shifted, there's this sort of, you know, major shift from this millennial tradition of defiling the criminal corpse to the tradition that we have today in medical schools all across the, the world of body donation for medical science. And I want to talk a little bit about this guy, Prospero Lambertini. Just three years after that notification, he would ascend St. Peter's throne as Pope Benedict XIV. Who was he? So I said he was this nobleman, although his family didn't have much money, even though they had the noble title. He's probably our most intellectual pope. And he was deeply immersed in science, particularly medical science. He was expert. And why? Well, one of the reasons is that for 20 years before coming to Bologna, before becoming Archbishop of Bologna, he was called the Promotor Fidei the promoter of the faith. It was his job, well, in, in sort of more uh, common parlance, he was the devil's advocate. It was his job, every time there was a claim to sanctity, miracles, he had to discount that. He had to disprove those claims. How did he do that? He did that on the basis of modern medical experimental science. And so, just to give you an example, kind of the standard miracle, <laughs> almost always had to do with the body, right? The blind see, the mute speak, uh, the lame walk, the dead rise. How did he disprove these? On the basis of his expert knowledge of the, the, the huge opus, the whole corpus of medical literature at the time. And in fact, Benedict XIV is the author of these four giant volumes on beatification and canonization. The, these, this 
This, these volumes are what are used for the procedure today. There's a first edition over at SLU, if you want to see them. And if you read his book on miracles, one of the volumes is de devoted to miracles, 500 pages, it's all medical science. There are far more fathers of medical science than fathers of the church that are cited. And um, so he was deeply immersed in contemporary experimental science. And it was his belief that there was no incompatibility between faith and science. He really, this was what, this was sort of um, his crusade to talk about the compatibility of faith and science. In fact, he believed that in this, after this long period of decline in Italy post-Galileo, that the only way for the church to exist in the modern world was to embrace modernity. So some of the things that he did as both archbishop and then as pope, he, was, he founded the first museum of anatomy in Italy. And it was um, this absolutely extraordinary museum. And you can actually go to Bologna and see that museum today. Um, he had, uh, so the museum was, he gave permission for the artist to use 50 cadavers per um, figure. There were eight life-size figures. These were skeletons on which the artist molded waxen muscles, um, glands, veins, all perfectly replicating the anatomical body. The other thing that he did, he was a great supporter of women scientists. He was the backer of the first woman to receive a university degree. And what did she receive it in? Physics. She was an expert on Newton. She taught. He, he, he made sure she had a teaching position at Bologna. He was the backer of a woman anatomist that I've written about, a woman mathematician. He sought to enhance medical practice, particularly those areas that have always been seen as lonely, lowly manual labor, surgery and obstetrics. Surgery had been done traditionally by barber surgeons. He established the first chair of surgery. Obstetrics had been done by lowly midwives, and he had established um, a school of obstetrics in which midwives and surgeons were taught side by side modern methods of child delivery. Um, and so one of the people who was most influential for him was a guy named Ludovico Antonio Muratori. Muratori is somebody who really merits much more study because he advanced, he advanced this notion of rational or regulated faith. And he believed that superstition has no place in Christian faith. Superstition has no place. And one example he gave is um, reliquaries. He said that it is heresy to bow before the, saint, the tombs of saints or relics of tombs. And Muratori said, because the saint is not there, it is just wood and paint. The saint is in heaven. <clears throat> Send your prayers to heaven. Superstition has no place in faith. How many minutes for time? Yeah, oh, okay, minutes. I'm going to wrap up. Okay, so there was this moment. Now, by no means was Benedict a perfect pope. By no means. I can say lots of things that were not great about Benedict. 
But this was a really interesting moment in the Catholic Church. It's one that was sort of erased. Um, why didn't it last? Why didn't it last? And I think that brings us to our contemporary moment, perhaps, in some ways. So one of the things that, that happened under Benedict and the influence of Muratori was the elimination of many, many feast days. All kinds of religious practices that were considered superstitious, but were beloved by people. Beloved by people. So this idea that these ignorant, superstitious rites or um, activities or, or uh, feasts were eliminated left the people cold. And this pope did not have a lasting influence. He did not. And so it is this idea of popular faith and institution or more intellectual kinds of expressions of faith that I think is perhaps at play here. Um, I think I'll leave it there because I know that folks want to uh, get to these questions. I don't know if I should have open it to any questions. No, we'll do that at the very end. Um, so on your table, you're no longer cheating if you turn your um, discussion sheet side to side up. You have three questions to talk about. Did I not get some to you all? We'll send it down. Shanking me hand. So, you've got three questions. Here they are. You've heard a very specific story about faith and science working together in a way we might find morally problematic. Uh, you heard about that shift between the way faith and science interacted in the, um, in the infanticide case and the way dissection was treated by the faith community just a few years later. So you've heard specific stories. Can you think of other such stories where faith and science held together are problematic? Can faith and science work together for social good? Second kind of round of topics. Do you practice or do members of your family practice something that could be considered a superstition? How are your superstitions related to your faith? Is there a distinction between faith and superstition? When it comes to medicine, there is so much we still don't know, so much we still take on faith in terms of how therapies work or don't. Talk to a doctor about um, how that works. Does traditional faith, as opposed to what we take on faith, have a role in caring for illness in your mind? And what is that role? So talk amongst yourselves, you got about 20 minutes. We'll come back for a big conversation as a group, and along with questions with uh, Dr. Mesbarger. Thank you. Talk amongst yourselves. <laughs>